Well, uh, most of you know, uh, or um, for those of you who are guests, let me share. Uh, a few months ago, Jody and I adopted uh, a new puppy. His name is Gus. He's a party-colored uh, miniature schnauzer. And uh, as you can see from the pic, if it's up there or when it's up there, he's uh, also a Nats fan. And uh, one of the things that we have been reminded of, we've raised a couple puppies, but one of the things we've been reminded of is uh, they come with a lot of challenges and a lot of questions. And uh, there are times he seems more like a a furry land piranha uh, with those sharp puppy teeth. At other times, he's almost like a living, breathing uh, teddy bear. At times, he's really clumsy. Uh, and trips all over himself, and yet at other times he has an agility and a quickness that is far beyond my ability to catch him if he doesn't want to be caught. Bottom line, if he does not want to be caught, at least by me, he will not be. I think for the first time, I'm 58 years old, I think for the first time I referred to myself as elderly when I was trying to catch him with a dish towel in his mouth. But one question that we have had and that we continue to wonder is what will he look like when he's fully grown and how big will he be? How do you find this out? Well, you can go online and look at all sorts of charts and I've seen charts that, that uh, vary uh, considerably. Or I've asked the vet and she's kind of given me a, a good sense of what uh, that will be. But there is one almost foolproof way. And that is if you have the ability to see uh, the puppy's parents. And we were able to do that based on uh, his mom, Kalua and his dad, River. Uh, Gus is going to be about 10 to 12 pounds, somewhere in there. So puppies are usually a good image or good reflection of their parents. So today is not a puppy seminar, nor is it a puppy support group for middle-aged puppy parents. But we'll come back to this idea of offspring reflecting the image of their parents in just a few moments. So uh, let's uh, return to uh, our summer series called Echoes from Exodus. And in this series, we're exploring how God liberated and how God redeemed the Israelites from their oppression and slavery. And we see the incredible, miraculous work of God in redeeming the Israelites out of oppression and slavery. We see how God worked in that incredible moment, echoed all throughout the pages of the Bible and indeed all throughout history. In the grand story of Exodus, we hear Echoes of God's redemptive purposes that were ultimately and completely fulfilled in Jesus. And just as the events of Exodus shaped the identity and the stories of the Israelites, indeed, indeed, the life, ministry, and death of Jesus shaped the identity and the story of the Christian. So let me just, uh, we're, we're, we're midway, a little over midway through the series. Let me just give a recap of where we've been. So the people of Israel, God's chosen people, the people who were chosen to be the vessel of God's goodness and glory and grace to the world, they are facing a most challenging time. They're enslaved in Egypt, and they have been oppressed brutally. So God raises up a leader, Moses, to confront the Egyptian king, Pharaoh, and to lead the people out of Egypt. Moses had a powerful and a unique birth story. He grew up in the palace only to become a refugee after he murdered an Egyptian who was beating one of the Hebrew slaves. Moses retreats or flees to a place called Midian. He meets the daughter of a shepherd there. He marries, has children, and one day he's tending the flocks on the far side of the desert when God calls him through that great image of the burning bush to lead 
the nation of Israel. Moses struggles with the call. He doesn't believe the people will believe him and give him the credibility. God shows miraculous signs through Moses to to grant that credibility. And then Moses confronts Pharaoh the first time, and things go from bad to worse. Last week, we opened up chapter 6 and celebrated this incredible moment when God started saying what God was going to do. And in one of the pinnacles of the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, we see seven statements of God saying what he's going to do. I will bring you out. I will free you. I will redeem you. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. I will bring you to the land and I will give it to you as a possession. We see here in these seven I will statements in this pinnacle chapter in the Old Testament, we can boil those down to four statements that we see in the life of the Christian. We are set free from the bondage of sin and death. We are in a covenant relationship with God and with one another as God's people. We can know God deeply through the power of the Holy Spirit, and we have an inheritance. We have an inheritance that can never be taken away. So let's pick up the story. Exodus chapter 6, verse 13, and we'll read through 7-7 with a break here and there, and you'll see why we're going to take a break in just a second. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. Now these were the heads of their families. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel, were Hanuk and Palu, Hezron and Carmi. These were the clans of Reuben. Now we're just going to skip to verse 26. I'm not going to read the entire genealogy, but here's one thing to note. Have you ever been reading through the Bible and you get to a genealogy and you think, oh my goodness. Matter of fact, if you say I'm going to read through the New Testament, you start Matthew 1 with the genealogy of Jesus. Genealogies matter, and they usually mean something theologically in the context that they're placed in. And so here what we see is that Uh, the writer of Exodus is making sure to establish the priestly line of Aaron by giving us this genealogy, okay? So let's just read the genealogy on your own, uh, and we'll skip down to verse 26. And we see the reason for it right here in that first sentence. It was this Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, this same Moses and Aaron. Now, when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. The Word of God for the people of God. In our text this morning, we see the framing of an epic battle. And one part that we, significant part that we play in it. The epic battle is God 
versus evil. Taken at face value, this looks like a battle between Moses and Pharaoh, but it's really not. In reality, the epic battle, the battle for the ages that still rages, is the battle between God and evil. Now, there's a phrase in this text and other parts of Exodus that have caused many to struggle. In verse 7-3, the text says that God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And this quite understandably implies that God was involved in Pharaoh's refusal to let the people of Israel go. Elsewhere in the text, God says, elsewhere in the text, when we get to the first five plagues, for example, the text reads, Pharaoh hardened his own heart, yet in other plagues it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, a great question then for us is who caused Pharaoh's heart to be hardened? And then follow-up questions that are good for us to ask, does this mean God caused Pharaoh to sin? And does God cause hearts to be hardened today? In other words, does God act in such a way that people can't respond to him today? These are great questions whenever you fly by a statement, God caused Pharaoh's heart to be hardened. Some would say an absolute yes, that God caused Pharaoh's heart to be hardened, but they would also then say very quickly that this does not mean that God was the immediate cause of Pharaoh's sin, and that in God's sovereign plan, God still overcame Pharaoh's evil in the liberation and the redemption of Israel. A concern with this point of view is, understandably then, would God cause someone's heart to be hardened today in such a way that they cannot respond to his saving grace? And then another point of view would say that that God and Pharaoh were both involved in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and that God did not change Pharaoh's heart to make him want to kill the Hebrews. Pharaoh already wanted, through his evil nature, he already wanted to kill and bring evil upon the Israelites. But God did give Pharaoh free will and God gave him the courage and tenacity to follow through. I encourage you to spend some time on your own digging through this deep conversation. The bottom line for us today is this. God worked his sovereign plan in spite of Pharaoh's evil. God is not the origin of evil in our world, but God does allow evil to exist in this world and will work in spite of it and will work through it to achieve his sovereign purposes. There's no amount of evil in this world that can keep God from doing what God intends to do. Let me say that again. There's no amount of evil in this world that can keep God from doing what God intends to do. The more personal question regarding someone's heart being hardened toward God, the Holy Spirit prompts us to conviction. The Holy Spirit brings us to that point of faith. And we can resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit. God does not give up on us until we give up on God. And that's something for all of us to keep in mind. God does not give up on us until we give up on God. But let's not miss the epic battle between God versus evil. And just as God overcame the evil of Pharaoh, God won the war with evil when Christ died on the cross and was resurrected from the dead. The war is over. The victory of evil over evil has been won. However, there are battles. 
that still play out. And we see them in the news every day. And let's face it, we see smaller versions of these battles in our own lives. How do you define evil? Well, there's many ways. But one of the ways is we could just actually look at Exodus for a moment. Pharaoh used and exploited an entire nation of people for his lust of power and profit. There was no way he was going to let a free labor force go, and he tried to hold them down so they wouldn't threaten his power one day in a slave rebellion. You can trace almost all evil down to the root cause of exploiting, deceiving, or diminishing others for the sake or the defense of self. Let me say that again. You can trace almost all evil down to the root cause of exploiting, deceiving, or diminishing others for the sake or defense of self. We see this in classic headline issues such as greed, racism, lust, envy, power, and disregard for the precious gift of life itself. Our area made national news last week when there was a shooting outside Nationals Park that wounded three and caused panic from within. Police believe that it was a targeted shooting from two cars that were driving by the stadium, but an innocent bystander and an innocent bystander was also wounded. For this and any act of violence, it is hard to fathom that kind of disregard for human life. Just shooting in a crowd of people and hoping you get the people you target. How? It just, there's no value of life there. And yet on the other hand, we know that evil can turn dangerous and deadly. We know that. We see this in more subtle issues. We see evil in a more personal way in subtle issues like truth-telling, holding grudges, gossiping, self-centeredness, pride, and arrogance. Just as the classic battle in Exodus is between God and evil, so too the battle against evil in our own lives, the battle over our sin must be fought with the power of God. We must often see and experience God's power over temptation and sin through the spiritual resources available to us like Bible study, meditating on the Word of God, prayer, encouraging one another in the faith. St. Paul wrote in Ephesians 6, 10-12, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And then Paul says to put on certain items like truth and righteousness and faith. And I love this phrase, the gospel of peace. This idea, this great news that the Lord came to reconcile humankind to God and humankind to one another. In so doing, we have the resources to stand against the spiritual temptations and sin. And we have the spiritual resources to stand against evil on behalf of others. If you're in a constant battle with temptation and sin in your own life, the reality is you will struggle to have the spiritual resources to stand against evil on behalf of others. Let me say that again. If you are constant, if in a constant battle with temptation and sin in your own life, the reality is you will struggle to have the spiritual resources to stand against evil on behalf of others. This includes your family, 
your friends, your church family, those on the margins in our world. Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy, in a large house, some dishes are made of gold or silver, while others are made of wood or clay. Some of these are special and others are not. That's how also it is with people. The ones who stop doing evil and make themselves pure will become special. Their lives will be holy and pleasing to their master, and they will be able to do all kinds of good deeds. In another translation, it says, resist the ignoble deeds so that you may pursue the noble deeds in your life. This brings us to one of the ways that God works in the battle, and that is through the image of God seen in humankind. The Latin here is imago Dei. There is a phrase in verse 1 that we often rush by. Let me just read it again. It says, God says to Pharaoh, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Not a good translation, by the way. The actual translation there is, I will make you God to Pharaoh. Not like God. But the actual translation is, I will make you God to Pharaoh. Now, this in no way intends to suggest that Moses is actually God. It just means that Moses will function like God to Pharaoh. In Egyptian culture, Pharaoh was considered a divine being. Uh, one terrific Exodus scholar, Peter Enns, wrote, By calling Moses God, God is beating Pharaoh at his own game. It is not the king of Egypt who is God. Rather, it is this shepherd and leader of slaves who is God. And he defeats Pharaoh in such a way that leaves no doubt as the true nature and source of his power. He confronts the elements, bugs, livestock, fire from heaven, and the water from the sea. I will make you God to Pharaoh. While, yes, Moses' role and power were unique, the idea of a human representing God is not new, is it? We hear the echoes of this most fully and completely in Jesus. We talked last week about that great passage from Hebrews that Jesus was the exact representation of the being of God. And in reality... This echo runs all the way from the beginning of Genesis that we heard Jeanette read earlier into our lives today. Jeanette read, read that great passage that humankind, we have been made in the image and in the likeness of God. Our great call is to represent this image of God to the world. When you think about the majesty and splendor of creation, when you think about all that God created from the majestic mountains to the roaring seas, from the stunning beauty of a, a rose to the toughness and tenacity of a leopard, the crowning glory of God's creation is humankind. When humankind is fully human, when we are living as God intended us to live, that is when we begin to see the image of God in the world. One thing you'll notice in Genesis is two accounts of the creation of humankind. We see this one in Genesis 1, that we're made in the image and likeness of God. Then in Genesis 2, it is far more poetic, if you will. Genesis 2, 7, we read that God formed Adam from the dust of the ground and breathed breath into his nostrils, the breath of life. This more poetic account is so intimate. We see Adam here being face to face and the first thing Adam experiences is the breath of God in his lungs. Have you ever held a child face to face, nose to nose, cheek to cheek? It forms an incredible bond. 
And this idea of us being made in the image and likeness of God, do you know what that means? It means that God has forever tied his identity to ours. God has forever tied his identity to ours. And if you keep rolling through the creation account, you see that God's given us something to do. Name the animals. Have authority. Steward. Oversee. Take care of. Creation. In other words, represent God. Bear God's image to the world. This is why what was lost in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned is so tragic. The very image and likeness of God was scarred, was broken. This image that was meant to be shared with the world. So Moses was to represent God to Pharaoh and do his divine bidding. We are called to represent God in the world around us. We're called to stand up for God in the face of evil. But how do we do this? How do we do this if we have our own issues? The Bible says that we all fall short and we all fall short of the glory of God. That's where Jesus comes in. The Lord of life, the Lord of the resurrection, set us free not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. In Him, we can be renewed, recreated, restored, and reconciled. In Him, we are being made new. Yes, it will take the rest of our time on planet Earth to be fully restored and fully renewed. We will always engage our own battles with temptation and sin. But once we are in Christ, it does not have the grip and the grasp on our lives. By His grace and through His power, we can live like His image bearers, doing His good work fighting evil and standing up for righteousness. He does this through us. In the coming weeks, we're going to see that Moses did some incredibly and powerful works on behalf of God. And God worked uniquely through Moses for that purpose. Now, before you begin saying, you know, those are Bible days. You know, that that phrase, I hear that all the time. Those are Bible days. God doesn't do that now. God may not choose to work through a singular figure like Moses today, but God has chosen to work through his people. God has chosen to work through his church, the very body of Christ in the world today. And what the church can do under the power of the Holy Spirit, acting and serving like God's image and representatives in the world is nothing short of what Moses did. Through the work of the church around the world, under the power of the Spirit, people are healed and set free. People hear and receive the gospel of peace and are reconciled to God and with one another. Relationships are restored. Hungry bellies are fed. Children are educated. Orphans are placed into families because of the church working around the world. Addicts are liberated. The anxious are given peace. We are called to represent the image of God in the world around us. And the work of God is a work of liberation and deliverance and power. If the church today is not about the same business, then we will be out of business really soon. That's what it means to bear His image in the world. Remember, Jesus announced His ministry by saying, I am here to declare good news for the poor, freedom for the prisoner, recovery of sight for the blind, to a 
set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. As we bear the image of God in the world, as God intends it to be, that will happen. Let's make this personal. You are the crown of God's creation. You have been made in the image and in the likeness of God. Go home and look in a mirror and say, that is the image and likeness of God in the world. You've been created for that high and holy purpose of doing His image bearing. Just as God was represented to Pharaoh by Moses, God has chosen you in Christ to represent Him to the world. Have you ever wondered you might be the only image of God someone seriously considers and they see? Yes, we have all fallen short. And yes, Christ will forgive you, restore you, and renew you in the power of the Holy Spirit. So I just leave you with one question. What kind of image are you bearing? We are all called to bear the image of God. Amen? Let's pray together. God, thank you so much. You have, you have given us such a high and holy purpose to represent you to this world, the world that you incredibly love. And God, yes, the world that just absolutely breaks your heart because of the evil and the pain and the violence that happens when humankind lives out of the lowest version of ourselves instead of the highest version of who you made us to be. So God, we thank you first and foremost that indeed you did win the battle, the war once and for all with evil through Christ our Lord. And by your holy, mighty power, you raised him from the dead and because of His resurrection and life, we may have complete and full power over sin and death. We thank You, O oh God, for this power that You have given because it only comes from You. God, we thank You that You have called us to bear Your image in this world. And God, I just pray that You would hear our prayers this morning of confession when we have not been the image bearers that you desire us to be. And hear our prayers of commitment that indeed, God, we will take this role that you have given us seriously and bear you to the world. God, we thank you for trusting us. We thank you for calling us, equipping us, and empowering us to do your work. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me invite you. We're going to close our service by singing a hymn together. We're going to sing hymn number uh, 390. If you have a book and you'd like to read it from the book, we are called to be God's people. Uh, hymn number 390. Let's stand together.
before I share our uh, closing prayer, let me uh, share just a few brief uh, highlights this morning. First of all, uh, we have been uh, undertaking this massive project of cleaning out our church as we prepare to welcome uh, Potomac Crescent Waldorf School uh, into our building in September. There are some free items for giveaway. People, their eyes usually get really big when I say free. Uh, In room 202, which is on this level, so you can go out that door right there and head back there. Or there are some children's items in the fellowship hall. I encourage you to check out uh, those areas. Speaking of children, we're always uh, uh, in need of and in great appreciation for children's ministry volunteers. We plan to fully reopen our children's ministry classes, or hope to, uh, the first Sunday in October. And so we need volunteers to make that happen. And then also speaking of children, uh, our associate pastor, uh, Brian, and his wife, Sarah, uh, had their baby girl, uh, Sonia Reeve uh, Hoysa. There she is right there. Uh, On Tuesday, mom and baby and dad and twin brothers are all doing really well. And so uh, we just celebrate with them uh, this wonderful occasion of the birth of their daughter. Uh, Sarah will be on maternity leave. She's our children's ministry director uh, until October. Uh, Brian uh, will uh, be in and out for the next few weeks. Uh, But anyway, I know you'll want to say congratulations to them as you have opportunity. Uh, Let's now bow for our closing prayer. God, we thank you so much for uh, the way that you uh, continue to work through us. Just continue to make us, Father, the people that you want us to be. And we pray, O God, that you would um, soften our hearts, that we may yield completely and fully to you. Now, Lord, take us from this place. Help us to share your image with this world you so deeply love. In Jesus' name, amen.